rainbow. Exorcism, a sacrifice. Blessing or bestiality. The curse of the devil. Satan in control of the body and the mind. My love will destroy the creation. I swear that you'll find it. Hello, I am Rod Barnett, and I'm here to bring you a mini-episode today, something we haven't done in a very, very long time here on the Nashy Cast. So we're just calling this a kind of uh, Nashy special episode. What, is, what this boils down to is about a half-hour interview with author Troy Howarth talking about uh, his new book, Human Beasts, the films of Paul Nashy, which debuted... This year, uh, in June, just last month, at Monster Bash. This is Troy's book on the films of Paul Nashi, And uh, we're very excited to have a new book about Paul Nashi and his films out in the world. Because, well, to be honest, it's been a very long time since there's been a new book about Paul Nashi out there. Hopefully there will be new books on the horizon from other people as well about Mr. Nashi, And that is all good. Of course... I know I'm never going to get my wish, because what I would like is uh, a series of books kind of structured along the lines of the BFI, the British Film Institute book series, where celebrities and film historians take one Paul Nashy film at a time and just really delve into it for about 75 or 100 pages, picking it apart and putting it back together again, giving us real insight as to how that film interfered or made wonderful certain person's lives and... You know, if you've ever read one of the 33 and a third books about a particular album that you truly love, that's the kind of attention to detail that I'd love to have on, like, say, oh, I don't know, every Valdemar Daninsky movie, or or maybe just Horror Rises from the Tomb. That'd be great. But for right now, let's celebrate where we can with Human Beasts, the films of Paul Nashie by Troy Howarth. I'll be back for a brief outro after the interview. Enjoy, everybody. I'm here with author Troy Howarth, who's just published his latest book, one that is of special interest to us because, of course, the subject matter is Paul Nashy. Now, um, any, anyone who comes on the, the Nashy cast eventually gets asked this question one way or another, which was, how did you first encounter a Paul Nashy film? How did I first encounter a Paul Nashy film? Well, I think the very first one that I ever saw was Night of the Howling Beast, uh, Werewolf and the Eddy which was kind of a staple in the 80s on the USA Network. Right. And Commander USA used to run it every now and again on Saturday Nightmares. And I remember seeing it and thinking, this, this is an interesting movie. Now, of course, at that time, I'm just a little kid. I couldn't tell you how old I was, probably 10 years old at the most. And I had no idea who Paul Nashie was. And it wasn't until later on that I started paying more attention to kind of the broader scope of horror films and, and horror film history that I came to realize this was somebody significant. And uh, an article, a two-part article that showed up in Fangoria by Shane Dahlman 
was very important for me as well because yeah. I was reading that and that gave some sense of the scope and, and everything of his career. But it all comes back to Night of the Howling Beasts, Werewolf and the Eddy. Um, then later on, gradually catching up with Horror Rises from the Tomb and, and uh, films like that. Yeah, people who, uh, people uh, who Own the Dark was a staple on video shelves when I was growing up. Uh, there were a lot of public domain copies, but they never looked very appealing. The cover art was not very good, and I didn't know what the film was, so I never actually watched it then. <laughs> but I can remember seeing it and holding it many times and thinking, I don't know if this is worth watching or not. Wish I had seen it sooner because it's a wonderful movie. But yeah, incredible film. Um, what was the impetus for deciding to, to do enough research to like dig in to actually do a book on Nashie? Interestingly enough, it really came from people who've read my other books who would approach me and ask me, especially at the Monster Bash, which we're sitting here today in June, and uh, I had numerous people come to me. You, you were one of them, in fact, who, who said something about Nashi, and I had other people say, you know, you should do something on Paul Nashi. There's no, no really good books available on him. And went back and forth for a while, and eventually I just thought, well, why don't I do it? You know, there's no reason not to. So, uh, really, two years ago, the idea really took hold, and here we are in 2018, and the book is out. Hopefully, people will like it. Well, um, the name of the book is Human Beasts. Yes. Official publication date is this June? This yes. is the Is this the official publication date? No, well, it, it officially became available on Amazon and various other platforms like that about, I'd say, about a week ago. So, it's, you know, we're pretty much, this is like the official launching of it, so to speak. Cool, cool. Now, the um, how would you describe the approach you took in writing the book? What is is this more? Does this err on the side of uh, biography information, or does it uh, does it delve more deeply into assessing the films, or is it a combination of the two? It's a combination. It's more about the films, but it does have biographical information. When I decided that I was going to do this, I knew that I needed to reach out to Nashi's sons, Bruno and Sergio Molina. And uh, if they hadn't been responsive, I don't know. Maybe I would have given up on it. But they were both incredibly kind and supportive, very enthusiastic about it. They both agreed to do forewords for the book. And uh, so they gave me access to a lot of good information and good uh, material as far as pictures and things are concerned, a lot of family pictures and things like that. Um, So there's biography, yes, but it's also about sort of charting the trajectory. A very unusual career. This is not a typical story of a, a, a weightlifter turned <laughs> bit part actor turned writer, director, star of horror films. He really is um, virtually unique in horror film history in that you know, all the other people that you think of associated with horror films, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, Vincent Price, Karloff Lugosi, all these guys, to one extreme or another, they were kind of reluctant about being pegged with this. And I understand why that was. But Nashi loved this stuff, and that's what he wanted to be. So I wanted it to be, above all, a tribute to a man who really loved this genre and believed in it and went through some really dark times. If you've ever read his autobiographies, I'm sure you have, you'll know he had some bad times and a lot of self-doubt. And unfortunately, I wish he was still with us, but I, I wanted to at least be able to tell the family it was worth it, you know, all the trials and tribulations, because here we are nearly 10 years after his death, and we're still talking about it. Well, uh, on the subject of his films, and this is a question that gets asked of just about anybody who will talk about Nashi films to begin with, is like, 
what uh, if you had to pick three, and those are the the three favorite Nashy films, whether his what, regardless of his role in the film. Which which three would you would you consider to be uh, something along the lines of you know desert island films, the ones that you know you can watch over and over again and not really get tired of? That's well, interesting because you know I think his best film, without a doubt, from my point of view, is El Caminante, yeah. which fortunately just came out on Blu-ray as uh, The Devil Incarnate. Um, that's a really extraordinary movie. Um, I'm very fond of The Frenchman's Orchard <coughs> or The Frenchman's Garden, depending on which translation you prefer. But in terms of just sheer entertainment value, sitting down and watching the movie again and again and again, probably the three that I would go for would be Werewolf Shadow, Horror Rises from the Tomb, and funnily enough, even though he's, he's quote-unquote just a supporting player in it, he didn't write it, he didn't direct it, but the people who own the dark, I'm very fond of that one as well. Three excellent choices, and and all certainly at the top of any any list that expands out beyond three. <laughs> any, anything that allows you to, to play around with more titles, most assuredly. Yeah. The um, the the joys of Paul Nashy films always lead me down the path of thinking about um, the films uh, how he would have preferred them to come out. He very famously is one of the few uh, few. Uh, creators and definitely one of the few in the horror genre to get to essentially remake one of his own scripts and do it in a way that he felt was more uh, more uh, conscious of the, the vision that he had when he wrote the screenplay. Right. Um, on with, When you take into account those two films, you just named Werewolf Shadow as one of your three favorites. How do you feel that his, his unofficial remake of that film, Night of the Werewolf, how do you feel it stacks up to it? Objectively speaking, it probably is a better film. It's probably, it certainly has better production values. It's more stylish. better cinematography. I mean, it is better. It is a better film objectively. There's something about Werewolf Shadow that I just really, really love. I, it's hard even to put it into words. It's just that Euro '70s thing. Yeah, it's that, a it's a '70s thing. There's an aesthetic yes, that just can't seem to be something. replicated. It can't, and it, of course, even doing it later. Um, it's it's a classier movie. It's yeah. obviously he was a better actor by then. He was a better writer by then. So some of the early stuff that Nashy did gets a little ropey in the beginning when he's trying to sort of get the exposition out of the way. You get a lot of people sitting around talking about, boy, isn't it wonderful that Countess so and so happens to be here? And look, she's dating Baron so and so. It's that kind yes, of like yes. it's a little hokey, but he got better as he went along and Night of the Werewolf shows that and you can understand why he wanted to do it yep. it is a wonderful movie objectively it probably is better I'd probably say I would probably say it's my second favorite of the Werewolf the Walter Martinsky films but I like Werewolves I don't know I just like Werewolf Shadow it has something about it uh, Nashi was was a very proud man justifiably so but very he could be a little stingy in his praise sometimes for people. And I always felt that he was a little bit unfair with regards to Leon Klimovsky in the sense that he would say he was his favorite director he worked with, he liked working with him, he thought he was a nice guy, but he felt that he was a little bit careless. And I don't know if it was that he was careless or if he was really working under a lot of pressure, that he had to get something done really quick, he didn't have a lot of money to work with. I think the World Shadow at its best, and I think all the Nashi films with the Klimovsky directed have one or two really great scenes in them. Yes. And, uh, you know, you can see that like in World Shadow with the little slow motion stuff, which which anticipates Osorio with the Blind Dead movies and all yep. that. Um, there's some really inspired filmmaking there from a man who was basically a journeyman filmmaker who wasn't really what you would consider an entrepreneur, but 
he knew how to make a good entertaining movie and I think Werewolf Shadow for what it is is just it's, it's firing on all cylinders well I will say that one of the uh, one of the complaints that Nashi leveled against uh, Klamowski was in uh, and, and this could be part of that idea of sloppiness and it's one I, I do wholeheartedly agree that often the scores for Klamowski's films seem like not, not even a secondary choice, but like a tertiary choice where you're just, you're getting to the point where often the scores are sometimes working against the film. Um, so I understand if that was his complaint and that could, to an that, extent. that would be a complaint if I were someone seeing, seeing that extent. up on the screen. So, But it's a weird thing because it, it reaches a point and I don't know if you just become overly familiar with the films and maybe you start to lose a certain objectivity or something, but I know that the music... <laughs> Vengeance of the Zombies is, of course, notorious. Problematic. But I can't imagine it without it. Well, again, yeah, now, but how many times have you watched it? Of course, now it's part it of it. It is a weird you. score. Yeah. Did he have anything to do with it? No. He was probably off doing the next job, and that was not unusual. Um, even Jess Franco, it did very often. He wasn't involved in cutting together these movies. Um, he was off making something else. So, um, I don't have a problem with the music in World Shadow. Personally, although oh, no, they did I, rescore not, not it, that, not with that one necessarily. Yeah, but. they did. Res- I should say re- they they changed the music on the American version called Werewolf versus Vampire Woman, where they've used a lot of music from a movie called The Name of the Game Is Kill, yep. and they actually used a lot of that music also in Jess Franco's Venus and Furs, funnily enough. So, I like the original music that uh, Anton Garcia Abril wrote for it. I think that well, music's very good. I think the scores that Abril wrote generally tended to be something really worth hanging on to and actually good good stuff yeah. and rarely inappropriate because it seems that when he was hired he was actually writing a writing music to the or film, film. Yes. whereas a lot of times in some Klamowski films and not necessarily we, we've we've gone way afield from just the Nashy Klamowski co- collaborations to watch a lot of other Klamowski films and there are times when honestly Troy and I have looked at each other going wow if they just altered the score a little this would be about 10 times better i i don't doubt that's true i mean again i wouldn't make an argument for him as a great auteur type type filmmaker although he is he is somebody who deserves maybe a little more study um i, I, I think he, he does deserve some study uh, because because if you look at the breadth of his career there's a lot of really high quality stuff there oh. problematic and imperfect as a lot of it was did some very interesting films vampires night orgy i'm very fond of that's yeah. another one with a problematic score perhaps. exactly uh, I Hate My Body, a very unusual film. I love that film. Uh, it is so bizarre. It is bizarre. It's, it's, it's the Euro Trash Freaky Friday. It's That's bizarre. exactly what it is. Um, some of the other, I mean, a bunch of stuff seen that he made some westerns. He did, I mean, he was, he was a journeyman. He yeah. did whatever was popular at the moment. But so was Fulci, you know. So, um, But unlike Fulci, he didn't have a tendency to be involved in the writing of his films. I don't very rarely did you see his name in the screenplay credits. Um, I think he was the perfect director for Paul Nashi in the sense that he was able to realize those scenarios very, very well with the means that were available. And uh, imperfect though they may be, sometimes that's part of the charm in some sort of a weird way, I, I think, that you know maybe the music is a little strange and a little off. But how much of that can you give credit to him? I don't know, because realistically, again, probably had very little to do with that, if anything. Well, on the subject of Nashi directors, of course, I always go back to those four beautiful films directed by Carlos Alred, and I, I find those to be four of, easily four of the most impressive yeah. of his horror of his horror work. Well, and he, he was he was uh, Klimovsky's assistant on Werewolf yeah. Shadow. Yeah. yeah, So he obviously knew 
he picked up the best attributes and maybe improved on them in some ways. It's interesting to compare a movie like Curse of the Devil to uh, Werewolf Shadow because it's much more stately. It's a slow movie by comparison. Werewolf Shadow is very pulpy and it moves real quick. Yeah. Curse of the Devil is slow. It's sedate. It's kind of humorless. But it's a wonderful movie, but it's very, very different. You know, there's no, there's no consistency between those films. It's just all dependent on who directed them. Um, you, you get the Klimovsky approach, then it's very different from, uh, you know, something like The Werewolf and the Yeti, for example, which is a total comic strip. So, yeah. very, very different movies. Well, that's one of the things that I think makes um, the the, Dan- the Daninsky film series, if we're gonna, you know, if we're gonna just, you know, give them an overarching title, which you kind of have to. Because of the number of different directors that were involved in them, there were a number of different styles, and honestly, that's something that for me has kind of worked in its favor. Because, it, regardless of how you look at them, there's really only two of them that have any any kind of tangential link together. That could one that could be called a sequel to the other, and the rest are, you know, you know, re- reboots. Before we were talking about reboots in a weird way. It's like a serial, you know. It's just a. It, it's here, it's there, it's everywhere. <laughs> well, it can be set in period one time. It's in feudal Japan and another. It's in right. 1970s, uh, well, it wasn't Spain. Of course, they wouldn't let these movies be set in Spain back then, but, you know, Germany or France or whatever. Um, I, yeah, that's part of their appeal. Of course, unfortunately, later on, um, after Nashi really kind of took it to a, a really high artistic level with um, Night of the Werewolf and Beast of the Magic Sword, then it kind of went over to other hands. Yeah. And as you know, with movies like uh, Lycanthropus, uh, which is a very problematic movie. There's, 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 a good, there's a good idea in that, and there, that could have been, Lycanthropus could have been a great film. It could have been. But um, wrong director, wrong time, wrong, a, a lot of wrong things, unfortunately, worked against it. One good thing is the makeup. Agreed. I like that makeup. It's very I, much and like And Henry I think Nash's performance in it is yeah. exceptional. And folding in his own um, his own health problems, folding in the whole thing about having had the, a heart attack by that point in his life, yep. was a brilliant idea because I think you can see it adding to his performance in the in the transformation and also in kind of the wistful nature of a middle aged man now having to cope with this this particular curse. It's great. Oh yeah. Now having said that, as good as he is, unfortunately, he's not in it enough. No, he's not. That's a big problem. I don't know if that was down to his health problems or what, but for whatever reason, he's not in it as much as he should be. Um, so it falls back on supporting people who aren't, let's face it, aren't as good as him. They're not as interesting. No. But it's not a disaster. The, the disaster, the one he never should have signed off on, it's easy to say that. You know, we all need to earn money and we all want to work. But uh, Tomb of the Werewolf, you know, yeah. coming, coming over to America to make that film was... Um, I think his heart was in the right place if nobody else's was. <clears throat> I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think his heart was in the right place. And uh, I'll be honest, between that one and uh, Werewolf from the Amazon, I'm just, those are, those are uh, there's, no, there's no nice way to say, boy, there were better endings for that, that type of character played by that actor. So I guess if I had to pick between the two, I'd go with their Werewolf from the Amazon as being more tolerable. Agreed, but I still haven't been able to make myself buy that new DVD of it. So, <laughs> no, no, it's it's sad. It's sad, and unfortunately, you see this with a lot of our sort of beloved genre icons. They end their they end their careers badly. And fortunately, he didn't entirely because he did have the the uh, Valdemar legacy films. Uh, yes, 
those were an appropriate end, but some of the other eh, the later films weren't, weren't so good. I still hold out hope that those films will get some kind of uh, video release over here in the States, because I think they would stand pretty well just as genre efforts, even if they only got some kind of uh, streaming release on Netflix or Amazon or something of that nature. But He's not in the second one as much. No. Um, but it, it is nice to get to the end of that film and see dedicated to the memory of Paul Nash. It's, it's a nice thing. And as I was talking to you before, it is nice and it seems very appropriate that he ended up in a couple of Universal Horror films at the end because they distributed the film. So they distributed those movies, that's, yeah. That's kind of nice. It seems very fitting for the guy who essentially it all started seeing Frankenstein meets the Wolfman back in the 40s. Going through, I know that for I know that for this book, you uh, you you saw as many of his films as possible, which I'm assuming is pretty much you All know. Of them. So my question would be, once he's uh, once he's a star, once he's a, a writer, producer, and even director, uh, past that point in his career, you can you can see that the man took advantage of what our opportunities were put in front of him, including the the the. The political changes within Spain, being able to finally do certain things that were uh, verboten before. Oh yeah. So uh, the the question becomes, um, and and you've said this before, the 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 thing that a lot of people are unaware of until they really start looking at his career, is that he worked in a lot of different genres. Yes, he did, and uh, not always successfully. Although more often than not, successfully, um, he had some unfortunate encounters with comedies. Although. He did make a film that got him into a certain amount of hot water in the late 70s called uh, Madrid, Al Desnudo, Madrid in the Nude, which uh, got him a lot of hate mail, got him a lot of threats apparently because he was lampooning people in the film industry and it was kind of one of those how dare you bite the hand that feeds you kind of a thing. Got into some trouble with that one. That's an amusing little movie. But uh, well, I like it. I think it, I think it's a good little film. We I were, did we, too. we were we were pretty happy with it when we finally got around to it. Yeah. I like it. I, I like it. And it's uh, I think if I remember right off the top of my head, I might be wrong, but I think that was the last time he had Rosanna Yanni in one of his films. Always nice to see her. And uh, but you know other films like uh, Operation Mantis, maybe not so much. But when I think of really very, very interesting films that he's made that don't fit as horror films. Obviously, I mentioned El Caminante. It's kind of a horror film, but not really. It's kind of in the gray area. Um, it almost feels like one of those sort of medieval Chaucer-type movies. Very much so, yeah. Um, Death, uh, the uh, Frenchman's Orchard, which I mentioned before, which is based on a true story. It's a horror story of the true kind, but it's not a horror film necessarily. Um, really fascinating movie called The Transsexual, which yes. desperately needs a good... The video I have of it is terrible quality. It's probably the only... I've seen a couple of different prints, and neither of them were fantastic. No, so, yeah. I'd love to see a nice version of that. Uh, the Sniper, which is one of his best performances. He's really wonderful in that film. That's a very, very good... That's another movie got him into a lot of trouble. Uh, there were a lot of nasty threats and phone calls. He said, you know, in his autobiography about getting phone calls, death threats. Yeah. Um, I can believe that. That's the type of movie, if he had made it a couple years before, he would have been shot. Yeah. <laughs> You're making a movie about, you know, fantasizing about assassinating Franco. You know, that's... Uh, and other ones, too. You know, Death of a Hoodlum and Death of the President and uh, various different offbeat type films that he tried. There was a lot more to him than just horror films. That was his passion and he loved doing them. But it's it's worth noting that he did all these other types of movies as well. And uh, again, I think it's true that down through the years, if you look at the first couple of films that he starred in, he's a little wooden in them. Yeah. 
he wasn't a trained actor. He didn't have a theater background. He wasn't somebody who had done a lot of work in, in movies. He'd done background roles, but nothing substantial. But by the time he got to World Shadow, he was getting substantially better. And certainly by the time he gets to the late 70s with movies like El Caminante, he could have been a major leading man yes. in, in Spanish mainstream films. Without a doubt, he had the talent for it. And honestly, I think films like Frenchman's Garden, El Caminante, were... We should have been his ticket into that. And by then, a combination of things within Spain, I mean, the, the whole uh, sex film, that's, that's, that's where the money was then, were sex films. And yeah. uh, it just wasn't going to happen. He, I think he, he, would, he would have had to have been willing to step outside of Spain, you know, see if he could get some financing in Germany or England or Italy or someplace like that, where maybe he could have worked his way into those kind of films. But I think it was partly a... Um a devotion to the people that he knew and loved. Um, although he was burned by a lot of people. That's a running theme yeah. throughout his autobiography. He was burned by a lot of people. Uh, there was a certain bitterness there, but I think it was deserved. And um, also probably language issue. I don't know that he, he was fluent in any other languages, uh, that he would have been able to go over to France, for example, and make films over there, or gone to Germany, or gone to the U.S. Because when he came to the U.S. and tried making some films here in English, it didn't work very well because he, he did, really didn't speak English very well at all. So that might have hurt his opportunities too. But yeah, that whole, everything changed in the 80s regardless. Not just in Spain and Italy, all these different places. The bottom just fell out. And that type of movie pretty much went away. Yeah, and like I say, if he'd been able to, if he'd been able to uh, find a way to get himself into large larger scale productions where his now solid acting chops could have stood him in good stead in, in, in larger productions where he's a, a supporting character who's, who's, who proves himself. It, it would have been a very different story through the 80s instead of what unfortunately happened, which is his career decline always has always seemed to kind of mirror the, 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 the real strong decline of Euro, European exploitation cinema in general. It's true. So it's not a real surprise, but... No, it's a shame though, because really he, he paid his dues by then, and he had made a lot of money for a lot of people, and he did well for himself, but then uh, Operation Mantis apparently just utterly obliterated yeah. all that, and there were a lot of unfortunate things that happened around that time. I often wondered if he would have got himself into the cast of a movie like Horror Express, if that would have done something yeah. a little bit better for him. He could have played Pujardov, the monk, Oh yeah, of course. And I, no. I, I spent a few years before really jumping in with both feet into uh, going through his filmography and learning yeah. as much as I could about him, thinking that that was him. Alberto de Mendoza is brilliant in the film, and I, I would hate to say you know I'd like to replace him. He's wonderful. He's great. He, he ended up playing against Nashi in uh, People in the Dark. Yeah, uh, de Mendoza played the lead in that. <clears throat> But, yeah, he could have done it. There were talks of different points of, of him collaborating with uh, Christopher Lee, for example. There was a film in the early 70s called Eye of the Vampire, which Leon Kolonovsky was supposed to direct. didn't happen. And even at the end, uh, he was writing a script with Christopher Lee in mind. So if something like that could have happened, who knows? You know, Maybe it would have got him a larger audience um, when he was at the uh, uh, one of the... I forget off the top of my head... Uh, which film festival it was uh, that he won the prize for Hunchback of the Morgue. Uh, I don't know if it was... Uh, I, without looking it up, I can't remember right now myself. I think it was a yeah. French festival. And apparently Terrence Fisher was there, and Peter Cushing was there, and uh, Fisher had talked to him about maybe doing a film together at some point, a uh, Jekyll and Hyde movie. 
That would have been great. That would have been fascinating, yeah. It would have been great. But his Mr. Hyde, by the way, not to get too far off topic, I think that was the scariest performance he ever gave. That's a vicious, vicious That's performance in that. I love that movie. Yeah. And it's one of the ones that, strangely enough, seems to be one that... I don't know how, but it, it, it seems to get lost in the shuffle when people start discussing his films. And I think it's just be. I think that it is harder to come by. I think that there's a there's a, an odd gap in uh, that film's video releases yeah. because it had a um, uh, it had a British DVD release, yes, but never a the, no type of uh, digital release here in the states. And so to see that one, you would have had to go into the bootleg market. Yeah. Or uh, have you know have access to the ability to play a British DVD and seek that particular disc out back when it was in print. Well, actually, Code Red did put out a, a, a DVD combo. Yeah, with um, Vampires Night Orgy, I believe. But once again, it's not as well distributed no. as something that comes out from Mondo Macabre or Shout no, Factory. No, so. no, it didn't get much re- response, probably, which is a shame. It's a really good little movie, and uh, it has that fantastic scene where he uh, transforms in the discotheque. Yes. For example, or, or in the elevator um, when he's stranded in the elevator with the nurse. It's just a great scene. But his his hide is pure id. That's terrifying. I think that is the scariest of all the things he did. I think that's the scariest character. I think I think it's a, it's an amazing performance. And and, and the combi- first of all the as soon as you see the title, you immediately think as a horror fan, holy crap! Why did no one ever think of doing this before? And then when you see it, it's a really good blending because. It, 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 he managed to do something with that script that was not exactly what you would think from the title, which is, well, these are going to be two different characters. And no, he combines the werewolf and, and the, the Hyde character into a single body, and that makes it even more intriguing. But, of course, it also gave him the opportunity to play both roles, which, if he's going to write it, he's going to do that to it. He's going to give himself the plum roles well, again. He, he was doing dual and sometimes triple, even quadruple roles after a certain point all the time. Yeah. Uh, even in uh, you know Horror Rise from the Tomb, and Curse of the Devil, for example, Mummy's Revenge. I mean, he was always multitasking, and but that was fine. It was you never got a sense of him overextending himself, or it would have been better if somebody else would have played it. I agree. I agree. Uh, now, the one character that he played, where I like the film and I, I like him in it, but I do kind of understand why people have a hard time with him is, is when he played Dracula. Yeah, it is. It it, it is a little tough to take at first but I actually think he's very good in it and if you see the film in Spanish that's so important because the American dub on that well English dub was terrible so I'll say though that that's a film that that lives I have problems with the film because and there are very obvious problems there's a lot of very bizarre unexplained things a number of of things that we could go into a long discussion of but I, I already have multiple occasions but <laughs> suffice to say the thing about that is I don't think the dub necessarily hurts that much because so much of the film, and I agree with you about the dub, don't get me wrong, yeah. but the dub, uh, so much of that film, it plays like a silent movie. It does. There are, uh, the, the, they're just, the, the director is working overtime, Javier Aguirre, uh, Javier Aguirre is working overtime with the colors and with the set design and with having these you know these beautiful women and setting things up in this amazing way. And there are whole sections of it where dialogue, there's no dialogue for, you know, minute after minute after minute after minute it's just being told visually and it's well I, I wonder if some of the problems are down to the fact it was a problematic shoot as you know oh, very much so yeah. there were a lot of problems there were accidents that happened a couple of actresses ended up in the hospital and uh, yeah so that could have something to do with it too maybe something got lost in the shuffle but that adds to the dreamy quality I think 
Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing is that uh, Nashi that the Nashi Dracula Dracula role was always problematic for me as well. <clears throat> Along until just about I guess around about the time the uh, the Blu-ray came with the recent Blu-ray, which really allowed me to just watch. I think his performance as Dracula in the latter half of the film. He sells it very well. He, he has a beautiful moment where he cries at the end. Yes. Which is a very sort of Terrence Fisher moment. He often had his monsters crying in his movies. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, it's a, it's a Dracula with a heart, but he'll still bite you. <laughs> he's still effective in that in that vein, if you'll pardon the expression. But he's... he's um, he, I think a lot of people, especially younger people, and I remember seeing this description many times, they said, he looks like John Belushi. I can see this to a certain extent. To a degree, yeah. But I think that, you know, because he had that weightlifter's physique, it's not what we're used to. Uh, we're used to the very lean, very sort of cadaverous kind of drag. We're used so, to Christopher Lee and John Carradine. Right, right? Yeah. And, and so when you have somebody like that who's really beefy. But bear in mind, for a lot of the film, he's not, I mean, he's not really playing Dracula per se. He's playing Wendell. Right. I don't know why I picked the name Wendell, but anyway... Um, that's the little difference. So when he finally gets into that, you know, with the costume and the hair and everything, I I think he's good. I think it's a good performance. I think it's a very good film. And, uh, yeah, many films of his that I love. <clears throat> well, uh, Troy, thanks for sitting down and talking a little Nashy with me. It's not something It's it's not something that we get to do very often. Thank you. We, we live too far apart. Yes. But... Uh, Give, uh, give everybody the, the title of the book and where they can find it for themselves. Uh, the complete title is Human Beasts, the films of Paul Nashi, and you can order it on Amazon. Uh, if you're in Europe or various other places, they have it on Amazon, the Amazon in the UK and Spain and in Germany and Italy and France, so you can get it there. Uh, you can get it through the CreateSpace website. I don't know what the address is offhand, but okay. you can get it through there as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much I, I'm told that it's actually being stocked at the uh, Metaluna bookstore in Paris, which is very nice. Nice. Not that I'm ever going to get over there to see that, but, <laughs> uh, yeah, Amazon's your best bet. And there's a color version, which is, uh, goes without saying, the pictures are in color. There's a black and white version, which is everything's in black and white. Cheaper if uh, you're on a tighter budget. Nice, nice, nice. I would also like to compliment you on getting a, a, a fantastic cover painting. Yes, Mark Maddox is... Uh, oh, it's by Mark Maddox. Yeah, unfortunately, oh, you didn't know that, did you? Yeah, yes. now, now, now I feel bad for mentioning it. Yeah, he's a genius for being uh, for being a terrible person. But uh, No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Now, he did a beautiful job, and I look forward to having him do another cover for me for a future project. So, it's well, a beautiful um, piece. We'll provide uh, links to the Create Space spot, also to, to Amazon. And, uh, yeah, folks, as I, I have held the book in my hands, and I can tell you right now, it is a beautiful thing to behold, and uh, just excited to have a, a, a new book about Paul Nashi out on the market, because we are living in the, a nice little wave now of product coming out that involves Paul Nashi. So many Blu-rays are available now, so many films are available on Blu-ray, it's kind of a shock, and well, let's hope this is, uh, like I say, I just want more of it out there. So do I. All right, thanks again, Troy. Thank you. Bye. Death is on its way. Beware, the hunchback of the morgue. A freak of nature. A slave with a body broken from torture. A maniac with crimes beyond your wildest terrors. What kind of underground horror chamber is he building? 
What kind of monster is he creating? Why does he need more and more flesh? Who is he? What is his weird secret? The secret that strangles an entire city with fear. The secret you'll remember all the way to your coffin. The secret that made him the hunchback of the mole. Hope you enjoyed that interview. Uh, wish I could have spent more time with Troy just gabbing about movies in general. Of course, he's a guy who's written a number of books besides the Paul Nashy tome that is currently his most recent work. Uh, he's written a book on Lucio Fulci called Splintered Visions, a book on Mario Bava, uh, a couple of books on Giallo films. Uh, it's so deadly, so perverse. There's a, a number of volumes, I think, with a new volume on the way soon, focusing on... Uh, the more esoteric and uh, Americanized version of the Giallo. That should be interesting. So uh, if you enjoy Human Beast, you might want to look into some of his other books worth your time. Uh, I know I still need to read his book on Klaus Kinski because, well, anyone writing about Klaus Kinski has got to delve into a little bit of madness every now and then. So maybe that's what pointed him toward Paul Nashi in a way, anyhow. So once again, thanks to Troy Howarth. Uh, go out and pick up the new book and let us all know what you think about it. And stay tuned because we have a brand new Beyond Nashy episode coming up here very shortly. Thank you and we'll talk to you again soon.
Keep going.